Because your cross is powerful Because you rose invincible I can get up off the floor had that video a number of weeks ago, but we thought maybe you missed it. It'd be good to see it again. I've seen it like 17 times, and uh, it really doesn't ever get old. And so uh, we're going to share in a little bit about how you maybe can be in next year's video by getting uh, dunked underwater. And so uh, if you're newer with us, uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here, and uh, I'd invite you today to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And uh, so if you don't have a Bible with you or uh, a phone that's smart enough to have one on it, then you can certainly use the one in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at all that's your own, let's make that one today yours to have uh, as a gift from us to you because we all need one of those. All right. So as you turn there, um, a little peek uh, behind the curtain as to how some of the things that we operate and value as a staff I want to share with you. We have some, some core values as a church, but we also have some core values as a staff as to how we want to practice. And above all those values, the one that is the, uh, the most important, we would say around here, is one that Pastor Wayne instilled a long time ago, that as he started, you know, it was just him and a secretary some 25 years ago, and now as the staff has multiplied, he said, he always wants to make sure that we as a staff have what we call big eyes, that uh, we would have big eyes to see that regardless of what our specific narrow 
you know, job description might be. We always wanna have big eyes for the needs, the hopes, the opportunities within the people of our congregation and community that we're all in this together. Uh, you might say in like uh, maybe business terms, it's like how do you get your employees to think more like owners than employees, that, that we want some skin in the game. And so to um, continue to highlight that value as a staff, each month in our, uh, our all staff meeting, we have uh, an award called the Big Eyes Award. And this is our traveling trophy here uh, that you get uh, if um, you know, we highlight a particular staff member who maybe has exemplified big eyes in a circumstance or an area or an opportunity. Um, I uh, have never won the uh, Big Eyes Award, um, so I just stole these so I could use them today because uh, that might be the only chance I get to wear them. Uh, but the reason I bring them out today is uh, as we start a new series, we're looking at the series called Misunderstood Jesus According to Mark, that as we step into this um, this gospel of Mark that uh, is, is one of four different accounts or gospels, if you will, of the life and the ministry and the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the way that Mark uh, is, is distinctive is that what he does is he takes story after story after story of people misunderstanding who Jesus is. Uh, everyone from the religious leaders of the day to the crowds who, they, they loved him, but they didn't really fully understand you know, what he was up to. Even his own disciples, those closest to him, his own family members didn't fully understand what Jesus uh, was up to and who exactly he was um, in, the, in the early days of his ministry. And so Mark takes those stories of misunderstanding and uses them and allows Jesus to bring understanding through those misunderstandings uh, for us, the readers, now two thousand years later to better understand who he is and what uh, he has done for us and what now it looks like for us to follow him. And so the first 15 verses in uh, the chapter one of Mark of the 16 chapters uh, is really, you could say, kind of like a uh, a narrative table of contents, if you will, or like if you've ever read the introduction to a nonfiction book, you know pretty much where it's gonna go the rest of the book. And in the same way, Mark is using the first 15 verses to set the stage for where we're heading in the rest of the book of Mark. And so what we're gonna do today as we look at the first part of this is it's gonna give us, you could say, a set of lenses. It's gonna give us a grid or uh, a tint to which to understand everything that's coming our way so that we might not misunderstand Jesus and we would understand him more. And so that's what we're gonna look at today in these first 15 verses. We're gonna get a cool pair of glasses just like these uh, to be able to understand not just Mark in these 15 verses, or I should say understand Jesus, but as, a, as really a platform, a stage, um, uh, some lenses, if you will, to understand all of Mark uh, over the next six weeks as we, as we do this leading up to Easter together. So with that, let's dive into Mark chapter one, starting in verse one, where we will see the first set of lenses that we need to understand the book of Mark in. And that first set of lenses is the good news, that Mark is putting on display the good news. So let's look at that here, starting in verse one, all right? It starts off, the beginning. And that word beginning there is very intentional. It's the same word that would have been used in Genesis 1-1, uh, that in the beginning. And so the Jewish reader who would have had, you know, the Old Testament as their Bible, and as we're starting into the New Testament, would have caught on very quickly, okay, something's going on here. This is a whole new deal. This is a, a whole new way which we're gonna discover in Jesus Christ as they are using that word to redefine a whole new thing that's coming, okay? So we see that in the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. 
okay? And so it's just right out of the gate, spoiler alert, here's what the book of Mark is about. It's about the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And that word there, about, um, it, it could be translated about or of, or actually many other ways. See, in um, the New Testament, it was originally written in Greek. And in the Greek grammar or syntax, there is, you could say a pun here. Uh, an English, you know what a pun is in English? It's, it's kind of where a word, maybe it's the same word, uh, or maybe it's a word that sounds the same, can mean two different things in the same context, uh, sometimes humorous. It's a pun. And so just a few English examples to kind of understand what we're getting to in the Greek uh, would be, uh, for example, just waiting for the bus because my car got towed. All right, here's another one, because that obviously wasn't funny enough. <laughs> Can I trouble you for a glass of water? I'm a little hoarse. Y'all can like use these with your friends. You don't have to give me credit. This is just, just take it and go. It's just, it's free today. All right, one more and I promise I'll stop. All right, uh, I'm not fat. I'm just a little husky. <laughs> love it, love it. Okay, so... That's a pun, okay? And so the Greek pun that we see here in this phrase in verse one is talking about the gospel or the good news. Really, it's intentional. It's not an accidental. They use the grammar to highlight a pun, a double meaning, the author here, Mark, for us to catch that. First, the gospel is actually um, being brought by Jesus himself. That We're gonna see the gospel, the good news, Jesus is proclaiming is also second meaning about Jesus Christ, how it's actually translated there. So the pun or the double meaning is the gospel which Jesus is about to proclaim through the book of Mark is, oh, by the way, Jesus himself. The gospel that Jesus is gonna proclaim, he's gonna communicate, is in fact Jesus himself. It comes back on himself. To which, again, spoiler alert, uh, to maybe use some language from the, the now epic 1990s video game NBA Jam, Boom shakalaka. Anyone, anyone? Okay. So yeah, basically, boom, right out of the gate, this is the good news from Jesus, who, oh, by the way, it's all Jesus, uh, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so there's no heating up or warming up the crowd. It's like just right out of the gate. Here's what we're in for, the good news of Jesus, who is the Son of God, okay? So that's our first set of lenses. We gotta understand this whole book of Mark is about the good news of Jesus, all right? Our second set or second tint, I don't know how much to use this illustration from here, but uh, the second shade, if you will, that we wanna understand uh, the book of Mark to understand Jesus accurately in it is that this good news is the good news about the kingdom of God. It's good news about the kingdom of God. Jump down with me to verse 15. Uh, as verse 15 and verse one, they really serve as bookends of this theme of the good news of the kingdom of God. Here's how it wraps up. It says, the time has come. This is Jesus. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And this statement, it's the first time it's used in Mark, the kingdom of God, it won't be the last, is a huge statement. When we talk about the beginning of a new thing on the scene, we're talking about the kingdom of God. That really, it's hard to express that when it comes to an expression that encompasses the Christian faith, uh, there isn't one that's, I don't know, that bigger than the kingdom of God. Because what it's saying is the reign, the rule, the all-encompassing, holistic uh, reality of Jesus' sovereignty or God's sovereignty in Jesus has arrived. It has come near. Other translations say it is at hand. And again, as we examine the original Greek text, the verb tense here 
doesn't translate well directly into English. Um, and that for us, when we talk about kind of verbs, we usually, for the most part, there's some nuances, but by and large, we talk about things that happen uh, in the past, the present, and the future, okay? Past, present, future. But here, in the Greek tense, the, the, firm, the form of this verb, come near or at hand, is the perfect, active, indicative, third person, singular verb, which I know you all know, so it's fine. Don't, I, boring, just, you know, tune me out. But what's actually happening is in that form, in that indicative form, it, it has this double meaning. It's, a, it's another pun, if you will, this two-for-one Greek pun. And what it's communicating is that the good news of the kingdom of God, it has been, A, accomplished. It has been fulfilled. It has been completed right here and right now in the coming of Jesus. And it also has a continuous progressive understanding as well, that God's kingdom will also continue and will continue with continuing results. So in other words, the pun is that in Jesus Christ, this good news, the kingdom of God has been accomplished right here in his coming, and oh, by the way, the party's just getting started. The kingdom will continue with his presence, and now we live in that age. We live in the kingdom of God age that has come in Jesus, but uh, sometimes the language is used already, but not yet. It's already in that it's come, but it's not yet fulfilled fully because Jesus has not come again. So when Jesus comes again, that's when it's fully realized. So very cool idea that in the kingdom of God, Jesus has come, it's accomplished, but it's also continuing with continuing results, okay? Ain't Greek fun? Yes, okay, maybe not for you, but it is for me. All right, so understanding Jesus and Mark, just for review, and for an opportunity to wear these awesome things again. The Gospel of Mark is all about the good news that will be accomplished in the kingdom of God that's been accomplished and will continue to be accomplished, okay? And the third set of lenses we need to understand is that for every kingdom, well, we have to have a king. We have to have a king. Every kingdom has its king. And so follow with me in verse two to understand who this king is. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And so Isaiah is talking about John the baptizer, or John the Baptist, if you will, um, who, who's gonna come and prepare the way for Jesus. Comes this way, verse three. Of, as a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Okay, and so John is preparing the way, saying make straight paths for the king. And that would have been understood in that setting uh, very specifically in a very natural sense that if a king was coming, say, to your town or to your village, you had to make preparations for him. You had to get ready for the king to come. Uh, there were things that had to be done. And a big part of that was just making room and way for him and his whole entourage. Uh, and so when it came to the path or the road or the, the way in which they would come, if there were you know, boulders in the road, those would have to be moved. If there are gullies and ruts, they'd have to be filled in. If maybe through your town there were some narrow alleyways, those would have to be widened to make way, straight paths, clear paths, clear roads for the king to come. Maybe a more modern day uh, phrase would be uh, one, maybe you've heard it out of Great Britain when it comes to the queen. It says, wherever the queen goes, she smells fresh paint. You get it? You know, wherever she goes, they're, they're preparing the way. Just same, you know, if some sort of high official were to come to our community, you know, we got to prepare the way. You got to get ready, okay? And so John the Baptist is saying, we've got to prepare the way for the king. He's the one who's prophesied about in Isaiah to come and prepare the way. And so he's saying to the people, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Other translations say, clear the road, make the road smooth and clear. 
And so for us, how does that apply to us? For us today, we are in a season in the calendar or even um, the church calendar, you could say, in a season that some traditions call Lent. Really, it's just, it's just a fancy church word for Easter season. We're getting ready for Easter. We're getting ready to celebrate that Jesus came, died, and rose again. And so historically throughout the church, this has been a season where those who follow Jesus, you could say have taken it up a notch, uh, have given extra attention or energy or focus to what does my life look like when it comes to this whole idea of following Jesus. And so we want to make sure that we are preparing the way for him uh, in our hearts and our minds and in our lives this Easter season. So as a church, we want to come alongside you in that. We want to come alongside you that is over the next six weeks, as we look at this series in Mark and some things that go with it, we are all preparing the way, making way the way clear for Jesus Christ to come into our hearts, our minds, and then very specifically in the practical living of our lives as we follow him. And so the way that we are doing this, uh, we've used this language maybe haphazardly, but never really called it out. But we, we, we understand it internally is that we wanna make sure that we are giving attention to Jesus in our hearts, minds, and lives through rows, circles, and chairs. That we wanna give time to Jesus in our rows, circles, and chairs. And here's what that means. First off, in rows, that we want to commit over the next six weeks to be here in worship, to give extra attention to being here, to hear the word of the Lord as we look at these stories of misunderstanding in Mark that we might better understand him, that we might better follow him. And so each week in worship, we'll, we'll get that conversation started about the good news, the king and his kingdom. And then from there, we wanna, you could say, keep that conversation going between the weekends, between the Sundays, in our small groups, in our circles. So we wanna go from the rows to the circles, and in our small groups, you're gonna have content that's provided for you uh, to take the conversation further that got started here on the weekend, where you're building some relationships with some other people in the life of the church that's encouraging your ultimate relationship with the Lord, which is what this Easter season is all about. And then from there, when it comes to, oh, and just by the way, if you haven't had an opportunity to jump into a small group, I know Pastor Jonathan will be happy to do that. Uh, and it's a great season to do it because this is one of about two times a year where we make sure to emphasize kind of the syncing up of what's happening on the weekends with what we're talking about during the week. And so it'd be a great time to jump into one if you're not already. And so Rose, circles, and then lastly, you could say some individual time with the Lord in a chair. Uh, it might be a practice of solitude or quiet time is maybe the language you've used where we look at God's word, pray through what that could mean for us and then ask God's Holy Spirit to lead us in that in our particular life. And so to help you with that, uh, we have a reading plan that takes you about two or three chapters a week up till Easter through Mark. So pretty accessible. Uh, it's Mark is the shortest of the four gospels because he's all about action and what Jesus did. We just kind of cut to the chase. Um, so if you're kind of an action person, cut to the chase, leave out some of the dialogue. Mark's your guy. And so we'll read through that. And so we'll prompt you with those through our weekly texts. And then with that, even not more exciting, but something that's really exciting for us that we've never done before that we're doing this uh, Easter season as uh, the discipleship team and the worship team, they've come together and we have put together audio devotions for you. There are 10-minute audio devotions that involves worship, uh, a reading from, from Mark, as well as some 
prayerful and reflective questions for you to consider based on uh, the implications of the text and living out your life. And so we've been putting those together over the last couple of weeks and really excited about it. So um, I hope you take advantage of those. The easiest way to do that will be the text messages. If you get our text service already, they'll come out each Monday morning with the, this week's reading as well as that audio devotion. You can just click right to it. Um, and so if that's you, you can just tune out for the next 17 seconds because you don't gotta worry about it. But if you don't receive our text messages, then you can right now text First Decatur to 24587, and then you'll get these text messages uh, you know, on Monday to, to kind of set you off. And I should say standard text rate messages apply or something like that. But like, who pays for texting anymore? I was just thinking about that. They always warn you. It's like, isn't that just included? I don't know. Anyway, um, or you can subscribe on our iTunes podcast. Uh, and then if all that doesn't you know, fit your fancy, the easiest way might just be for you to go straight out to the website firstdecatur.org slash misunderstood. And I think week one's already out there. So if you just can't wait for tomorrow, you can go find it today. All right, fair enough? Fair enough. All right, so we hope you'll take advantage of all those things in rows, circles, chairs, that we can, again, be intentional this Easter season that we would dive deeper into the good news of this king and his kingdom and what it has to do with our lives, okay? So back to our lenses. We've got the good news, the king and his kingdom. Okay, these are generic words to some extent, you might say. Okay, so what, you might say, taking the lenses a, a layer deeper, what is the nature of this kingdom, of this good news, of this king? Well, we see that the nature of the king and the kingdom, as we read through uh, the, the following verses, uh, as we finish up these uh, verses in the first part of Mark, is that the nature of the king and his kingdom is all about forgiveness, freedom, and the Holy Spirit, which we celebrate in baptism. Okay? The nature of the king and his kingdom is a, is a kingdom that's all about forgiveness, freedom from sin, and uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is actually the celebration of what baptism is all about. Uh, verse four says, so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so forgiveness and freedom from sin and its reign and rule in our lives. Verse five, it says, in response to this, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. They're confessing their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, okay? And so this is what John is doing. Here's a little description of who John is, verse six. It says, John, he wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Um, so if you're trying to picture that, I would say just picture like Chewbacca with a belt, Okay, that's who uh, John the Baptist was. And he also ate locusts and wild honey. Cool guy. Verse seven, and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. And of course, John is talking about Jesus, the good news of the king in this kingdom, he's coming. Verse eight, John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with water the Holy Spirit, okay? And so forgiveness and freedom and new life all led by the Holy Spirit. It's coming in Jesus. Verse nine, it says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, what's interesting is in other accounts of this story, which again, Mark, he's the quickest. He's kind of cutting to the chase. He doesn't necessarily have all the dialogue, but in other accounts, it actually shares the conversation between John the Baptist and Jesus. And as Jesus comes and coming to get baptized, John's like, uh, time out. Um, I don't really think I should be baptizing you. I need to be being baptized by you. To which Jesus responds to his misunderstanding 
because John's misunderstood. He says, no, no, to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus says, this should be done. And so what we see Jesus doing in being baptized, um, he's obviously not being baptized for the forgiveness of sin because one of the theological underpinnings of who Jesus is is that though tempted, he never sinned. And so why does Jesus do this? Why does he choose to get baptized when he is the only person in all of history who doesn't need to do this? Well, what we see in Jesus is really, you could say, a transferable leadership principle. So for you, if maybe you're a leader in our community or in a place of business or just in your own home or wherever you are, we see that Jesus is leading us by, you could say, example rather than exemption. That Jesus is the kind of leader he leads by example, not by exemption. Well, I don't have to do that. And and we're gonna see this time and time again. Jesus calls us to serve, and then he leads us by serving. Jesus calls us to even die to self, and he obviously does that in the most extreme way by literally dying uh, for us. And so Jesus always leads by example, never by being exempt from any of the rules or opportunities. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He is setting the example for us in our own baptism, which celebrates the forgiveness and the freedom and the Holy Spirit that comes uh, in at work in our lives. We see this in Romans 6, 4. It says, when we are baptized into Christ Jesus, we are, just like Jesus was buried and, and died and buried in Good Friday and then on Easter rose again, it says, we are therefore buried with him through baptism into death. So we're essentially burying our own way of life, our old way of life, saying, okay, I'm burying the idea of me being in charge and From there, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may be raised to a new life, celebrating that new life that we have in Jesus of forgiveness, freedom, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, As we see in verse eight, that's how Jesus comes, to to lead us by his Holy Spirit. He's gonna baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit? It is the reality of the indwelling of God at work in us, and through us, that God's presence is with us. As it says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, that we are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We are a temple, it says in 1 Peter. We are literally an embodiment and a holder of God, and that's something that is beyond my understanding. Um, But it's good because it keeps us from the misunderstandings and doing things in our own strength and grounds us in the strength and the understanding of God's holy word in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, all of that is celebrated by baptism. Baptism is the, you, the party, you could say, that celebrates the new birth you have. You know how we have a birthday party every year that celebrates our physical birthday? In, in, in many ways, our baptism is our, our spiritual birthday. It's, a, it's, a, it's celebrating the new birth, the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. And so, as we were thinking about this and planning, you know, going through Mark and uh, preparing, you know, the next six weeks leading up to Easter, we got talking as a staff like, hey, what would it look like if, you know, we took, you could say, um, as that song said with the video, you know, this is my resurrection day. What if we made a, you know, baptism resurrection day uh, or resurrection weekend the same weekend as our Easter weekend? You know, we've had baptism weekends before, but we've never done it on Easter. And I know why we haven't, because real honestly, it would be super inconvenient. You know, we've got more people than ever showing up. We've got all these services. You know, people get all dressed up and dolled up and so their hair's all nice. And so it would just be super inconvenient to get baptized on Easter. 
Well, Lord help us if convenience is the standard for what it will mean to follow Jesus at any point. And so we kind of scrapped that and said, how cool would it be to have a baptism weekend, a resurrection weekend on resurrection weekend of Easter? So uh, we are super excited that we are gonna have a baptism weekend this Easter coming up in the next six weeks. And so if you have maybe been thinking about that or putting it off or been wondering about it, I'll tell you there's no better time to step into that than right now, uh, to step into baptism. And so to make sure that you're not just, you know, kind of flying blind on that, uh, you'll notice on the uh, little tear off in your program there, on the next step it says celebrate Easter through baptism. And there's the details of when the services are. There's also a couple of uh, informational meetings so you kind of know what you're getting into, not just spiritually speaking, but I know what you're thinking. I'd be thinking it like practically speaking, like, where do I go? What do I wear? What do I need? What, how does this all work? And so all of that, we'll have a couple of gatherings between our services on some Sundays here coming up that you can uh, catch that um, and how to sign up. And so you can go to firstdecatur.org slash Easter baptism to express interest in that. Uh, also, Pastor Jonathan will be out in the lobby at a table that says baptism, very creatively named, to uh, also talk with you if you wanna find out more about that. So if that's you or you're sitting here thinking, it's not me, but I know who it is, Send them our way. We'd be excited to get them uh, on, you could say, 2019's celebration of 2018's baptisms uh, that we're gonna have happen this Easter. Cool? Okay. All right. You like that? All right. Boom, shakalaka. All right. So we have, we have the understanding that as we go through not just these first 15 verses, but all of Mark, the good news of the king and his kingdom, and that's all celebrated through freedom and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit that's recognized in baptism. And then one more, when it comes to the nature of this kingdom, we also look at the nature of the king of this kingdom. And that is that Jesus, the nature of Jesus, is fully God and fully human. Jesus is fully God and fully human. So we see in verse 10 and 11 how he is fully God. It says, just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And so this echoes, again, that first one. This is the beginning of the Messiah, the son of God. And this is not a general statement, but we see literally, how do we know that Jesus is God? Well, Father God said so. He said, this is my son who I am well pleased, meaning I'm, I'm proud of you, my son. And so we see this again, actually, at the transfiguration later, Mark. God will again affirm who Jesus is as his son, and other people come to recognize that too as we move through it. So Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully human. Right after this, right after this recognition of the divinity of Jesus, verse 12, we see the humanity of Jesus. It says, right from there at once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, sent Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Uh, he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. And so here we have God, but at the same time being able to be tempted. And so we see this tension right in this cluster of verses of fully God, fully human, and it's what, uh, it's this theological fancy phrase, what takes place here in uh, God and man coming one is hypostatic union, a very important reality that God is uh, both 100% in Jesus and he's also 100% human at the same time, to which you might say, that doesn't even work mathematically. How can you be two 100%? How does that work? Well, it is a mystery. It is a mystery as to how it all works out. But don't misunderstand, it's not a mystery to be a stumbling block 
or are a problem. It's a mystery to be embraced. You know, up until about the last 200 years, kind of post-Western enlightenment, the history of the world and the history of faith was much more comfortable with the gap between our not knowing and what God has put in place. In Isaiah, it says that his ways are higher than ours, his understanding is, is, is much further than ours. And that's a good thing, because if we had a God that we could figure out fully, that's probably not much of a God. And so it's a mystery to be embraced. And uh, I, actually, I appreciate the way our Catholic brothers and sisters phrase this, uh, that at, if you've ever been to a mass, you might have heard them say like at communion, uh, that uh, the priest will say something to the effect of, we celebrate the mystery of the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And it's a mystery to be celebrated, to be worshiped, to be embraced, that yes, he is fully God and fully human. That is the nature of our King, of our God. And uh, if just being real honest, if I was sitting where you're sitting, I might say, okay, that's cool. But I'm kind of a practical, so what kind of person. So it's like, okay, that's great. So why does that matter? Like, why does it matter that Jesus was fully God and fully human? Why is that so important? Well, the reason it's so important is because, you could say because of what it's not. The reality of who our God is, is he is not a, a deist reality. He is not this far off, somewhere over the rainbow God who just spun the cosmos into a uh, star and just steps back, as, as some of the view that God is not engaged with us at all. That is a, a non-biblical, non-Christian view that, that we have a, a deity out there that does. That is not who our God is. Who our God is, is what we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us, that he came incarnation in flesh to be with us, that in Jesus we have God who knows what it's like to be just like you and me. That's why it matters. We have the God who knows what it's like, as we just read, to actually be tempted. Oh, God wouldn't know what it's like to go through temptation. Mark 1.13, Jesus God in the flesh knows what it's like to be tempted, even though he never sinned. We also have all kinds of other human realities that Jesus had or subjected himself to experience. We see in Mark chapter four that, that Jesus experiences fatigue. You know, they're on a boat in a raging storm that would send all of us, you know, kind of like, but he is so exhausted from ministry, he literally is just sleeping through the whole thing. Uh, in Mark eleven twelve, 12, we see Jesus experiences hunger. It says, quote, Jesus was hungry. In Mark chapter 10, we see Jesus becoming frustrated. You ever experienced frustration? Well, God know what it means to be frustrated? Yes, Jesus experiences frustration with his own disciples because they're preventing in this story the little children from coming to him. And Jesus is like, no, let the little children come to me for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we see Jesus experiencing anger. Uh, in uh, Mark chapter 11, he gets very angry with those who have turned his temple into uh, you know, this money-changing place, this giant ATM. And so he starts flipping things over and shows his anger a little bit that way. Uh, and we also have a God who knows what it's like to feel and experience human sorrow. Human sorrow at the deepest level. In Mark 14, on the night that Jesus is betrayed, he says of himself, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, to which we know from there Jesus goes on to experience the ultimate human experience, death itself. Like, think about this. God dies. God chooses to subject himself to the human experience of death, of course, which we know he conquers three days later, very important part of that reality. But all of it, 
to make possible the reality of the nature of this good news, this king in this kingdom that we experience freedom and forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so this reality of who Jesus is and why he came, this good news demands at the end of it, you still might be saying, okay, so what does that mean? What is, what's the practical implications of this? Well, we see in the last two verses, 14 and 15, the call to action. Given all of this reality, given all of the lenses through which we understand who Jesus is, we are called to respond, either to reject or to, to respond with a yes, but there, there is no neutral. And so here's our opportunity. Verse 14. It says that after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee and he proclaimed the good news of God. In verse 15, it says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, and here's our call to action. Repent and believe the good news. Given all of this, repent and believe the good news. That word for repent in the Greek is metanoia. It literally means to change one's mind, to turn around, to change directions. And so the application and the question of us then as a church is what would it look like if this Easter season we committed our minds, we changed our minds, we moved from the surface of misunderstanding and just kind of maybe doing things like we always do it year round and said this Easter season, we're gonna take it up a notch. I'm gonna be in church every weekend, not just 50% of the time or when it works out or when it's convenient or when the weather's perfect or whatever, or maybe when it's not perfect. I'm gonna be here, I'm gonna hear week after week, what does God's word have to say to us? And then from there, I'm gonna be a part of my small group or jump into a small group to have that conversation with other Christians to grow my Christian relationship with Jesus, and I'm going to commit each week to doing the readings and to hearing the audio devotions and experiencing those. Also, not just homework, but that we might grow in this response, that we might turn towards Jesus and believe more deeply because we do what we believe, and if we believe more deeply, then we'll follow him more closely. That's the reality. In in a later story in Mark 9, there's this man, he's like, Jesus, help me with my unbelief. He says, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. Meaning, yes, we believe, but there's growth that can take place. There's unbelief, there's a gap between where this man was and where he wanted to be when it came to his belief in Jesus. And that's true of all of us. We are not probably where we want to be when it comes to, yes, I believe in Jesus, but Lord, help me with my unbelief. Help me to grow in my faith that I might not only believe in my heart, but follow you more closely in the living of my life. And so the rows, circles, and chairs, this Easter season is your opportunity to close the gap between our unbelief and where we're currently at uh, right now where we want to be. So may we, one more time, last time I put him on, I promise. May we set our eyes through the lenses of the good news of the king and his kingdom that we might grow more deeply in the forgiveness, the freedom, and the gift of the Holy Spirit that we celebrate in baptism. Fully God, fully human came the God who knows what it's like so that we can accomplish more of the mission of our church, that we would become more devoted followers of Jesus Christ by growing and serving together. And so to that end, um, may I pray for us. Father God, we are thankful for your word that even through stories of misunderstanding, you utilize it to give us a deeper understanding, a deeper maturity of why you sent your son and how it is we're to follow him. 
God, we ask that as we sit in rows and circle up and in chairs that you would, you would grow our belief, that we would turn to you and you would grow our belief in you so that we might grow in our devotion and following of you and the living of our lives outside of those spaces. And God, we ask this in prayer because that's what prayer is. It's our invitation, our acknowledgement that this is not our strength, it's not our understanding, it's yours at work and dwelling within us. And so we pray in the name of Jesus that your Holy Spirit would in fact do this over these next uh, six weeks and frankly beyond. We thank you that it's you and not us. May it be in the name of Jesus. Amen.